Hi everybody, this is Michael Polo here for Crypto Cappuccino, and I'm here with David Duong joining me. Hi, David. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, doing pretty well. It's a, it's a very warm New York day. Yeah, right. Well, we're having the opposite problem here in Sydney. It's uh, you know nine degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit and rainy and miserable, but it's okay. Uh, you got to have these days as well to appreciate the good stuff. Um, so be before we begin, David, um, love to hear a little bit about your background and what you brought you to this moment in time, because I think you've got a, a very interesting and very kind of familiar type of background, at least for me and other institutional investors. Oh, thank you. Uh, and thanks for uh, inviting me onto the show. I'm very happy to be here. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I've actually spent about 17 years in the TradFi space. Uh, mainly, I've been doing research, primarily emerging markets research. And that's pretty relevant because that's really what brought me into the crypto space. I really you know, got to see, for example, as I was head of LATAM FX strategy uh, at HSBC, a lot of these countries dealing with hyperinflation issues of uh, being shut out of capital markets, for example, and really seeing the value of cryptocurrencies in terms of its diversification principles, permissionless abilities, the fact that it can actually democratize uh, the way people actually do finance and give them access to tools that they don't otherwise have. So for me, that was really the, the, the pull of cryptocurrencies. And I do think that, you know, being in a position, you know, being in finance, a lot of people are able to at least identify some of the value in things like DeFi, for example, and how that's trying to transform the fractional reserve banking system that has been around forever. Uh, so, you know, these are, are the things I think were really meaningful as I kind of explored the space. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's it's very interesting that you go straight into the emerging markets, right? Because that's the, the place where macroeconomic policy and macroeconomics especially has been playing out in the most volatile way in e either direction. I, I suppose it kind of, kind of brings me into this kind of question around do you think that that's where some of the biggest applications of this technology could be, aka in systems where the central bank or the central institutions are perhaps not that savvy in managing the macro tides and flows? I, I say that at the moment very um, shy because we just had yesterday a 9% print of inflation in the US. So, you know, in, in terms of currently pointing fingers, we, we probably can't do that too easily. But I, I think more historically, you've certainly seen you know, macro mismanagement, I suppose, and from the back of, I don't know, incompetence or fraud or, or just difficulty, and then from the back of that social unrest and, and other kind of social uh, impacts. So do you see kind of blockchain perhaps being the technology that has the most impact in that space? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think one of the more common criticisms that people have of cryptocurrencies is that there's no central authority. I mean, from people who are involved in cryptocurrencies, that's a feature, not a bug. I mean, we, we want decentralization. We want the fact that no one can control the space and that if you actually have Bitcoin, you can claim the Bitcoin or Ether or whatever that, that token may be. But, you know, from the critics perspective, they say, well, what if you need a bailout? There's no central bank or no central authority that's going to come in and rescue. If there's a problem or uh, there's no one who's managing your currency when it weakens. And very much we in the cryptocurrency world kind of look at it in the reverse. And we are looking at what's happening with the euro, for example, what the ECB is doing. And we say, well, 
you're dealing with the fragmentation of fiscal policy uh, in, in your region, which is actually making it really difficult to manage your monetary policy. And it's precisely why, you know, uh, or at least one of the reasons why you see actually the euro weakening at the moment. Now, there's other factors, of course, because there's the threat of recession and they're much closer in proximity to some of the geopolitical concerns that are impacting them. They're deeply embedded in, certain, in terms of the inflation risks there. Uh, so all it takes is Russia cutting off Germany from gas supplies and it tips it over into a really damaging recessionary environment um, if we're not already there. So I think the uh, fear around that from, you know, a person in my seat is that, well, actually, you would like to actually start raising rates, but you can't get rid of, you know, the monetization of the debt because otherwise you're going to allow spreads in certain countries in terms of the, the debt spreads to widen way too far, way too fast. And it starts hurting countries, and you know you do have to do you have to deal with that kind of situation. Now, maybe in the U.S., we're a little bit farther away from there. You know, we are obviously in a quantitative tightening scenario. We're removing liquidity, but I don't think we've seen the end of that kind of um, monetary policy. And you know, with the macroprudential measures that have opened the door to these kinds of things haven't gone away. So I think that's precisely an environment that cryptocurrencies actually are quite attractive. And and I think I think that that's interesting because cryptos are, are many things in one. I always find them interesting. There were some really good presentations at the conference that we met at, which was a consensus in Texas, and some of them more around just simply the transactionability of digital money, right? So the ability to move quicker and more efficiently uh, from between people, and that's really the kind of core value proposition. And then I think there's this other elements about fixing the supply. And essentially removing one of the levers of fiscal control or government or kind of economic control uh, from central banks and and institutions. And I, and I find that quite interesting because on the one hand, you've got central banks around the world now exploring digital currencies, really about the transactability of these for, from a from that perspective, that they clearly don't want to lose control. So, so their, their, their intention, I think, is not to be able to lose control of monetary supply and be able to kind of, um, you know, be constricted with that. So I'd love to get your thoughts because it feels to me like when people talk about this space, they, they kind of bundle all these things together and they, and they talk about, well, we need to remove money from governments trying to control money as a way of controlling our economy, aka you know, printing more money and quantitative supply and so on, because they're going to mess it up. They're going to mess it up from an inflation perspective. They're going to mess it up from some other perspective. But obviously, they're still having in interest rates under their control, even if they don't have supply under their control, which gives them some amount of, of responsibility. But do you, do you see that this is a kind of a movement, almost like a reaction? It's not, a, not an accident that Bitcoin came into existence in 2009 or the first white paper came to see the light of day in 2009. The technology was there already that this is a kind of a pushback to the centralization government management type model that we've been living in for, you know, whatever, like 13 years now. Yeah. And, you know, that's absolutely what I was trying to get at. You know, like we saw that the developments that started in 2008 directly led to the sovereign debt crisis that came only a couple of years later. And I think we're very much in the kind, same kind of place right now. Now, obviously, we've had the experience of that situation of global financial crisis. And, you know, we are, you know, we as a global economy are, are learning to how, to how to deal with that situation. But certainly uh, the fear of someone coming in, shutting you out, 
like kind of keeping you away from markets, that has become even more apparent uh, in the last couple of months. And so you're absolutely right. Like I think that now, like from a very you know thematic kind of standpoint, we look at cryptocurrencies as a solution to those kinds of concerns. Uh, I, I don't know who the, the winner in all this is going to be. I don't know if it's going to be an existing cryptocurrency or existing digital asset or if it's going to be a central bank digital currency. Like, I think it's really hard to say, but it's very clear that the blockchain technology itself probably isn't going to go away over the next couple of years. I, I think it's here to stay. No, I, absolutely. I think there's many different applications of it. it. It almost feels to me like if blockchain was a startup, then it kind of started with the stickiest, hardest problem, which is kind of money and, and currencies. And I think we were kind of discussing this on an earlier podcast that, you know, normally when you're a startup, they tell you to start with the smallest problem, right? They kind of the smallest, easiest, most transactive, and then and then move up. But I feel like we kind of st started straight into the sticky heart of macroeconomics. But there's a whole other side of cryptos, right, which is around um, more utility-based uh, approaches, right? So kind of, I suppose a little bit more of the metaverse NFT flavor, or indeed some of the other types of flavors where you've got coins that represents uh, value uh, to investors, or, or they, they kind of represent value chains. Ultimately, I think they probably will represent economic value as well. And so the, the question I suppose has become, do you, do you see that? I almost see that the two paths running in parallel, I almost see like a, a kind of a currency transactionary type uh, technology. And I see another one which just says, okay, maybe we can tokenize and we can move uh, value uh, to be to be traded much more readily. I mean, is that is that an area that that you also think might have legs, or, or how do you see that relative to the other area? Yeah, I think that a lot of people have this misconception that cryptocurrencies were are still in the area of trying to solve the payments issue, and we've definitely moved way beyond that. You know, I think that probably at its inception. You know, payments were, of course, the, the big focus, trying to create some sort of digital currency. But I don't really think that we're there anymore. I, I think that what we've seen in terms of DeFi, in terms of uh, decentralized social models, until in terms of trying to create NFTs, not just for you know profile pictures, but also for music and other assets. I think all these things are showing that there are now new use cases that are being developed and you know web 3.0 is definitely the you know umbrella term that we use for people to actually have access to control over like the their their own content and uh, i think that's hugely substantial going forward because we right now like give all of that value to big companies like google and facebook and other, or meta and, and other places instead of actually being able to retain that for ourselves so I think these things came from a place of need inside the crypto ecosystem. For example, like borrowing and lending, you know, like you couldn't go to a bank and borrow against your digital assets if you were hodling your digital assets, if you had faith in those things. So you had to create those tools for yourself. Well, lo and behold, we created a new system that actually still works to this day. It's, uh, it's a highly transparent. It allows people to borrow from each other. It actually creates markets for themselves. And now we've even seen that people can create liquidity pools and actually be their own market makers. So I think these things are going to be very transformative and actually supplant some of the traditional financial system as we know it. And and, and so just on that as well, you've obviously seen a lot of we've obviously seen a lot of collapses and, and challenges to that system at the moment, which I think as a community, we've kind of 
uh, talked about as, as a kind of crypto winter, or we've talked about it as, as lessons learned and, and lessons improved and so on. But in, in terms of that building, I've always found that interesting, also coming from a traditional finance background, that when you have these systems built by engineers, there's certain kind of naiveties that are built into the system, um, such as, you know, we can make you 20% rate of return uh, just because we can, right? And this idea that I think Terra challenged, you know, with with its own kind of version of how they could achieve that didn't quite work. Um, and then you've got a bunch of others like Voyager Celsius uh, and others who have just recently like uh, backed by as hedge hedge fund kind of risk taking. I mean, what do you think are some of the, the lessons that we can take away? Because I, I agree, I think the technology is compelling. I think the way that it's been set up and maybe some of the promises behind it, you talk about transparency, but I don't know where my 20% rate of return is coming from. Um, I mean, how, how do you see, I suppose, some of these lessons learned and how do you see that new iteration kind of changing? Yeah, I think that each of these things probably represented its own sort of risk. I mean, Terra, I think, was very specific insofar as it was trying to solve for a problem, mainly with stablecoins as we know it, like fiat-backed stablecoins, which, you know, have perhaps some limitations in terms of their ability to grow in supply because you need to be backed by cash or short-term treasuries, and there's only an, a finite supply of those things that could actually be used in reserve to actually back them. So that kind of limits its growth. Well. Terra's answer to that was UST, which was an algorithmic-backed stablecoin, which you could mint ad finitum, except that it didn't have a monetary policy behind it. Like the, the benefit of having a fiat-backed stablecoin is you're borrowing the monetary policy from central authority, whether that be the Fed or, or in, the, in, that, in the case of USDC or USDT, for example. But I think that <clears throat> the challenge was that if you don't have any monetary policy in, in the case of UST, like you're left wanting and, you know, you solve the problem of scalability, but you don't solve the problem of actually having a foundation. So I think that was kind of a separate issue in terms of its offering then of like 20% yields that were basically financed by LFG and, and other, uh, you know, entities like that, for example. Whereas I think what we've seen very recently with Celsius and Three Hours Capital and some of these other entities, I mean, this was a clear case of credit risks, not necessarily crypto risk. So these are things that we've seen before in the traditional finance space. Like we saw it in the global financial crisis. Like this was a, an issue of matching short-term liabilities with long-duration e-liquid assets. And we know what happens. It's very hard to unwind those things, particularly when, you know, the, the crypto flavor of of allowing them to actually uh, recursively borrow and increase their position size. Well, that's what really kind of breaks the system. I mean, the one thing that I do see that is, you know, probably universal to both situations is that if these things were done in smaller scale, if they weren't, you know, 200% of the market cap of Luna, for example, like if it was only 20%, 30%, it probably could have been much more sustainable than what we saw. And I think very similarly, like Celsius, uh, you know, and other centralized crypto lenders were just over leveraged. I, I think that if they had reasonable, you know, capital ratios, uh, you know, uh, market models that actually track the risk properly, we probably wouldn't have been in the position we were in. 
Yeah, they, it, it's funny. As you were talking, you just kind of reminded me a little bit of the um, taking it all the way back to things like Glastigal Act, right, where you had uh, banking in the US in 1933 being restricted to taking more risky investment banking type trading positions. And a lot of that wisdom came from the fact that banks uh, accepted deposits, but then they had um, prop trading desks, proprietary trading desks that were running their own risk. And so, you know, the idea was that there was very heavy, had to be very heavy risk constraints on those desks. So at no point in time can the bank say, for example, attract depositors money by saying, I'll give you seven, eight percent return on your money and then take that money and give it to a prop desk to go. Can you please make me now 12 percent out of this money from trading things and then kind of, you know, offer it back as, as deposit returns to its, to its customers, because that was seen as as a gross, kind of gross misalignment of risk. Right. So people were expecting to put in riskless, uh, essentially, you know, to, for their banks to be completely riskless. And uh, especially with federal insurance, that, that was definitely the, the reason it was put there. Whereas on the other side, the banks were running incredibly high levels of risk internally um, and, and using those risks to, to make money to hopefully pay back both shareholders and their depositors. And I'm guessing that this is kind of what happened in these little institutions that they go and promised quite a lot of returns to, to, to people who are staking or kind of making deposits essentially of their digital assets and then using that money to give it to others who then were taking great risks with that money to generate those returns, leverage returns so that they can meet those obligations. And so that misalignment, I think, was, I mean, I'm, I'm sure had they just communicated to their clients, listen, if you deposit your money with us, uh, that, you know, we're going to put into a high risk strategy. But if you if you win, you get 20 percent. So that's pretty good. Um, then I think it would be a very different outcome as well than what probably people thought was that staking was somehow, you know, basically relatively riskless activity of, of putting your digital assets in and, and then magically, I don't know, some validators or whoever paid you some money or some miners paid you some money for, for having that. Absolutely. And like when we're talking about that, there's clearly the liquidity issue that we need to consider. And it really wasn't thought about like at the time. Um, and I mean, precisely to your point, uh, I think a lot of these places, we people aren't thinking about why we saw the volatility we saw post this point. I mean, we, we, we got kind of the first wave of it, which we're like, oh, it's because of liquidation and such. Well, true, but also these counterparties that were lending and then like actually uh, be like, you know, taking their money or, or taking those deposits and lending it off to someone else. I mean, these they were rehypothecating their these assets. One of the places they gave money to was OTC desks, and they gave to them under collateralized because they either based it on on-chain or off-chain uh, data that allowed them to kind of determine their credit profile. But the point of it was that even though it's more capital efficient and you can do it in traditional finance, and we do see it in traditional markets, the problem is that uh, in the crypto space, you don't have those cycles like you do inside of TradFi where they say, okay, this is your repayment cycle. This is when you need to meet your margin calls. Like, instead, they had to actually widen spreads out. They had to actually reduce trade sizes. And so if you're trying to exit your position because things are really volatile and you're kind of dealing with a, a massive portfolio, well, that becomes a problem for you. And that's precisely what added to the volatility we saw over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, do you see <clears throat> Do you see that, again, back to traditional finance, you certainly see that um, crises make, you know, it, it change the flavor of executives and leadership and that kind of stuff, right? So you have 2005, six, seven, 
probably leading up to eight, you've got um, people in positions of power, CEOs of financial institutions with marketing, distribution, sales backgrounds. Post 2008, you've got CFOs and head of risks kind of running the show. And it really kind of changes the risk taking, um, not just the regulation, but the actual culture of people in the industry, I think, changes the level of risk taking uh, that, that happens as well. I mean, given I think we've reached, we, I think through the last boom cycle, probably leading up to November, we kind of reached a kind of a, a new high for this for this industry. And I, I also get the sense that we reached a new high in terms of sophistication of people coming into the industry from traditional finance and other areas. Do you see that this is going to materially change the the way their risk is taken in the industry, purely not from regulation, but purely the people working in the industry are going to be a lot more kind of aware of not just what happened, but also kind of because they're coming from more traditional finance, they've also got the, the boom and bust cycles that they've been through in their career as well. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a benefit to having sharing knowledge between a lot of the people in the space who are more tech based or more tech friendly uh, and bringing in the experience of people who you know, have seen this in finance and understand what the leverage risks were in this situation. Because again, like I said, like this didn't have anything to do with crypto. I mean, it was there was a crypto flavor to it, but really the solutions to these things are credit based. So that experience, I think, will be invaluable, especially as we, you know, take the learn the right lessons from this and actually move forward uh, and actually say, you know what? This is where you know the capital ratio should be in the space. This is where the risk modeling needs to be improved. So that I think is going to be really helped by more of the traditional uh, finance people who are coming into the space. Oh, completely. And, and one of the interesting things that I found in in some of those panels and again in the consensus conference in Austin was uh, some of the institutional investors that came out and said, look, recent volatility and downfalls haven't deterred our appetite for this space. We remain committed uh, to either investing through VC, PE funds into blockchain and blockchain startups and or we remain committed in actually uh, investing in direct strategies uh, that, that are investing in, in the assets of this space. Is that what you're, do you still see that? Is that what you're seeing or, or um, you know, is that or something different. Yeah, I think we are still seeing that. You know, the second quarter uh, definitely saw some reduction. I think in terms of capital raised by the VC side. So we saw around like 10 billion raised in uh, Q4 2021, 12 billion in Q1 2022. But then that kind of came down to around 8 billion in the second quarter. And in large part, it was because of the volatility that uh, we've been experiencing. Also, because they haven't even deployed the cash from those two rounds yet. I think that a lot of uh, you know VC firms still are looking to find the right environment to actually deploy that cash. So I think probably in the second half of the year, there is going to be a search for some stability, both in macro markets as well as in cryptocurrency prices. Uh, and if it starts looking attractive again, and I think we probably have seen some of the worst in the cryptocurrency market already, uh, probably that's going to be an opportune time for a lot of these firms to deploy more capital. I think one of the things that we're seeing certainly is the questions are changing from tell me about your technology and the potential of the technology to to tell me how to commercialize and monetize the technology. And so that, that I think happens in all risk markets. Maybe the, the thing that's a bit different, people have also pointed out, is that if interest rates stay higher than they were, let's say six, 12 months ago, 
and even maybe climb a little bit higher than a lot of that cheap money that that uh, VCs and PEs have been enjoying will start to decline as well. But certainly, I, I think the nature of it has moved to a different level of, um, let's say, um, maturity, where I think the money, at least the stuff that we've seen, the money-seeking projects is now looking for businesses. It's looking for actual businesses that are giving things to demand that exist today, rather than kind of talking about recreating the economy and, uh, you know, kind of, I suppose, painting pictures that are going to be around five, seven, 10 years from now. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, a lot of these investors are a lot more sophisticated than where they were previously. You know, we've even seen that on our platform where, it, you know, <clears throat> in 2021, for example, a lot of the hedge funds, traditional macro players, like, you know, like the uh, macro real money guys coming in, started out with just maybe Bitcoin and Ether. And, you know, those are the ones they're comfortable with because they have the market cap, because they have the volume. But like more and more, they were willing to go further out the risk curve uh, in the crypto space, if you will, uh, because they were seeing, you know, the value of those projects. Obviously, they're trying to capture more alpha as they kind of go out further along the risk curve, but also because these projects have real value to them in terms of what they're doing. And I think you're right. You know, like some of these things have to do with, okay, like, um, I, I, I understand that you're trying to rebuild a social network using a blockchain, but you know, how are you going to, how are you going to capture the value? Like what's the revenue stream? I mean, we still are asking questions like that and they're pertinent. I, I think we need to, but certainly the valuation models that we have, uh, in the traditional asset space probably don't lend themselves quite as well here. Um, but I think for the time being, it's it's a lot about growth and actually the expansion of of the network itself. Yeah, and I I agree with that. I think I think a lot of the the blockchain layer one type protocols and networks, they're still busy attracting people to them and using them to build stuff. But I also get the sense that they're very soon going to be, if not already, obviously uh, trying to go into traditional industries and companies and saying, look, use up blockchain internally for your problems, for example. So again, trying to commercialize what they have. Because so far, my, my visual around this has been that you've got almost like a, a, imagine like a big metropolis city, like a cyberpunk type cool city with like things flying around and whatever. And then you've got this hippie commune outside which is going, we're going to rebuild you better and we're going to democratize and we're going to do all these wonderful things because you guys stuffed it all up. And so they're kind of building stuff and there's people, you know, giving them money and oil and whatever to do so. And then at some point there's this question of, okay, so what, what is that bridge back to that other economy going to look like? You know, are you really going to be able to kind of recreate everything? Are you going to have to go and, and, and knock on the doors of, of those big buildings and, and go and sell your wares to them? A little bit how fintech, happened maybe about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, where they were first coming out and saying, we're going to take on the banks and we're going to create new banks and we're going to reinvent banks. And to some extent, they were able to do some of that in terms of FX and a few other types of operations. But the banks that were around, you know, 10, 15 years ago are here today. If anything that's happened is they've kind of integrated these technologies into their system. So I think I think there's still a, a version of this world where blockchain becomes um integrated but but i i maybe maybe my, my one of my final i suppose points and 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 just um topic areas for you is we were looking at some data from 1992 so people often say this this is like 1992 blockchain is like being in 1992 with the internet and it turns out that if you invested in the nasdaq in 1992 you would have made money over any period like after the Nasdaq crash, obviously before the Nasdaq crash, uh, you know, to 99, to 2002, to whatever, because there was such a exponential kind of curve that that 
put that buffer into you from 1992 to 1997, 1998, that essentially after that, the volatility that came around, um, all of that was fine. Whereas if you came on board in 1998, where it was dead obvious that internet is here and people were kind of really fascinated and the hype cycle was in full swing, you would have kind of had to wait after the crash of, of 2000, you would have had to wait maybe four or five years to, to really be on par again. So it, when when you're talking to people and saying, and they're asking you, I suppose, or asking the community, is this the right time to go back into this asset class or to go back into, you know, investing? Because a lot of money would have, a lot of people would have, um, you know, invested in um, cryptos when uh, back in the last year or even the middle of 2000, which would just still be in the red. Um, as, I suppose w w when you say things are going to stabilize and kind of rise, I, I'm not, I don't think anybody can time the market very well, but what's your sense like, because what is your message to them? Is this a three to five, even 10 year type of holding period type of investment? Or is there something else? I definitely look at cryptocurrencies as a long duration speculative asset. And you really need to hold it for a long period of time in order to kind of get the value out of that. But, you know, to your analogy about the NASDAQ and, and you know, I, I've seen people use like the, the price of Amazon or the price of Microsoft. And it also assumes that you had perfect knowledge, right? Like it, it wouldn't say that, like, hey, if I bought Amazon stock at five dollars and I held on to it for just two years, I would have been at 60. Well, yeah, but then you would have also gotten to 2001 where it went back down to six or seven dollars. And would you have been willing to hold on to that position over that entire period of time, knowing that if you just held it up until today, it would be above 2000 or like, you know, getting the, uh, have, have an insane multiple to it? I mean, it's tough. Like we're human beings. We are capable of actually managing our emotions perfectly or having perfect knowledge about how this 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 kind of stuff is. But if you're an investor. I would say if you believe in the technology, if you believe in where it's going to go in terms of what the blockchain technology itself represents or what is going to be built on here. And I look really towards like Web 3.0, like to some extent, the metaverse, like even tokenization that NFTs are actually proof of concept of, for example, if you believe in those things, then find projects that you're interested in, like, you know, have the faith that you're going to keep your money there. And if your investment thesis change changes, excuse me, then you can change your investment thereafter. But if it doesn't, then I would say hold on to it. And, you know, like that, that's that should be the way you should be investing in these things. Like you should be trying to trade in and out of, the, of it. Like this is a long term prospect. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I think it's it's fascinating when you look at any long term asset class in the same way and you think about, for example, equities and you go equity risk premium is a long-term concept nobody tells you to go and buy into things in and out but when you buy into equities you buy into the long-term economic prosperity of a given country for example hopefully you know into the earnings flow ironically today you're probably also buying into the competence of the central bank to manage that economic prosperity uh, on the side as well and I think if you really look beyond that and you say, what am I really buying into when I buy into shares? Well, you're buying into 
let's say, a, sort of a, a stable of dividends or kind of, a, I suppose, a recurring cash flow. And then you're buying into some amount of growth above that. And, and what's the source of that growth? Well, the source of that growth typically is innovation and technology, the ability to kind of you know adapt and, and grow to new industries and, and new outcomes, which I think blockchain out of AI, quantum, uh, you know, and, and a bunch of other technologies in, in whether it's agri-tech or healthcare or whatever, uh, are all part of that, those drivers of, of where that growth is going to come from. So I think, you know, m- most people would say that, that that are in this space, that blockchain is in the top three, if not top five, certainly, of that. So I think having a thematic, almost like growth exposure or growth allocation is is exactly as you described it. You, you put it there, you park it, you diversify because you don't know who's going to be the winner. On, for example, like in the early... 2000s you didn't know who was going to be the next ford but you knew it wasn't going to be a horse <laughs> and so that's the only thing you kind of had so you diversified amongst others and then you leave it in there as a, as a thematic uh, allocation so i think that that makes a lot of sense well listen uh, david it, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on and having a chat uh, about this whole area look it is a fascinating area i, I love the fact that people can li- like us in the midst of you know, a, a tremendous challenges to the space, both in terms of price direction, in terms of some of the failures and whatever, that two people like us with traditional finance backgrounds can still sit here and talk about the value of the technology and, and what we see as the long-term prospect for it to change industries, to reshape, you know, financial systems, to, to add value in so many different things. And that gives me a great deal of, I suppose, not just hope, but, but conviction, it reinforces my conviction that, 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 that this, this is definitely an interesting space for the long term. Absolutely. No, and it's been a pleasure being on here. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you, David.